0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple-choice questions related to fracture healing, which is one of the topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. The first question reads, what is the role of matrix metallopeptidase 13 or MMP13 in the early callus phase of bone healing? And the choices are one, expressed by terminally differentiated chondrocytes to degrade the cartilaginous extracellular matrix. 2. expressed by immature chondrocytes to degrade the calcified extracellular matrix, 3. expressed by terminally differentiated chondrocytes to degrade the calcified extracellular matrix, 4. expressed by terminally differentiated osteoclasts to degrade the calcified extracellular matrix, And 5. expressed by terminally differentiated osteoclasts to degrade the cartilaginous extracellular matrix. The correct answer to this question is one, expressed by terminally differentiated chondrocytes to degrade the cartilaginous extracellular matrix. So during the early callus phase of bone healing, MMP13 is expressed by terminally differentiated chondrocytes to degrade the cartilaginous extracellular matrix. To quickly review, MMPs are a family of zinc-dependent proteolytic enzymes that can degrade many protein components of the extracellular matrix. Their activity is necessary for matrix turnover during embryogenesis, morphogenesis, normal tissue remodeling, and repair. MMP13 belongs to the collagenase subgroup of the MMP family as it is able to cleave interstitial fibrillar collagens. It is constitutively produced by terminally differentiated chondrocytes, and in the normal state, it is rapidly endocytosed and degraded. In the presence of a fracture, MMP13 degrades the collagenous extracellular matrix in the early callus phase and assists in converting the soft callus into woven bone. Its aberrant activity has been implicated in arthritis, cancer, atherosclerosis, and fibrosis. Gerstenfeld et al. performed a study to develop three-dimensional reconstructions of fracture callus morphogenesis. They collected rat and mouse femur and tibia fracture calluses over various time points of healing. They found that endochondral bone formation occurs asymmetrically with cartilage tissues seen proximal or distal to the fractures in the callus. Remodeling of the calcified cartilage proceeded from the edges of the callus inwards, producing a supported trabecular structure over which a thin outer cortex formed. They concluded that remodeling of calcified cartilage produces a trabecular bone structure which provides rapid increases in weight-bearing capacity. Gerstenfeld et al. also performed a study to determine if the inhibitory effects of cyclooxygenase 2 or COX-2 specific anti-inflammatory drugs and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are reversible after short-term treatment. They administered the medications orally to rats for either 7 or 21 days and assessed fracture healing with biomechanical, histological, and biochemical analyses. They found that COX-2-specific drugs inhibit fracture healing more than NSAIDs, and the effect is related to the duration of treatment. They conclude that reduced prostaglandin levels in callus rebound with drug withdrawal, and impairment in the mechanical integrity of fractures is reversed after short-term treatment. Moving on to the next question. Smoking has been associated with lower fusion rates in both cervical and lumbar fusion. Which of the following statements best describes an explanation for these findings? And the choices are 1. Nicotine impairs osteoblast activity, thus interfering with bone remodeling. 2. The effects of smoking on bone healing are multifactorial and are not yet fully understood. 3. The vasoconstrictive and platelet-activating properties of nicotine inhibit fracture healing. 4. Nicotine inhibits the function of fibroblasts, red blood cells, and macrophages. And 5 hydrogen cyanide inhibits oxidative metabolism at the cellular level. The correct answer to this question is 2. The effects of smoking on bone healing are multifactorial and are not yet fully understood. So, tobacco smoking is now the leading avoidable cause of morbidity and mortality in the United States. The musculoskeletal effects of smoking have been implicated in osteoporosis, low back pain, degenerative disc disease, poor wound healing, and delayed fusion and fracture healing. A number of studies have demonstrated the relationship between smoking and development of pseudoarthrosis. Numerous studies have been performed to offer an explanation of the mechanism mediating this effect. Whereas all of the above have been postulated as explanations, more recent studies have demonstrated that nicotine delivered via a transdermal patch significantly enhanced posterior spinal fusion in rabbits. Thus, it appears that the effects of smoking on fracture healing are multifactorial and not yet fully understood. Moving on to the next question. As a diaphyseal fracture heals, peripheral callus forms about the shaft axis, creating a structure with a substantially larger diameter than the original diaphyseal shaft. What biomechanical properties does this callus impart to the healing fracture site? And the choices are 1. Callus decreases torsional stability and stiffness at the fracture site. 2. Callus formation is random and unstructured and does not affect the local biomechanical properties. 3. The callus decreases peak torque to failure with time. 4. The callus increases the moment of inertia, resulting in less strain at the fracture site. And 5. The callus decreases the moment of inertia, increasing stress at the fracture site. The correct answer to this question is 4. The callus increases the moment of inertia, resulting in less strain at the fracture site. So callus formation is biomechanically beneficial because it increases the outer diameter of the bone, leading to an increase in stiffness, torsional strength, moment of inertia, and decreases resultant interfragmentary strain at the fracture site. To quickly review, the biomechanical role of the peripheral callus is to provide initial stability to the fracture and to act as a scaffold for gradual mineralization. Because the bending stiffness of a structure is proportional to the fourth power of the diameter, a peripherally located callus provides substantial stability to the fracture despite the relatively low stiffness and strength of callus. For example, doubling the diameter of the callus increases the resistance to bending by a factor of 16. As mineralization progresses, the bending stiffness and strength of the healed fracture eventually may be substantially greater than that of the original intact bone. Augat et al. review the mechanical and biological aspects of fracture healing. They report that increased diameter of periosteal callus formation benefits healing by enlarging the cross sectional area of the bridging tissue and reducing interfragmentary motion. Patients with osteoporosis are known to have decreased callus mineralization and biomechanical properties. Moving on to the next question. In rat models, looking at the effect of malnutrition on fracture healing, amino acid supplementation in a nutritionally deprived rat increases all of the following except, and the choices are 1. Serum albumin, 2. Body mass, 3. Quadriceps total protein content, 4. Fracture callus mineralization, and 5. Insulin-like growth factor 1 or IGF-1 mRNA expression. The correct answer to this question is 5. Insulin-like growth factor 1 or IGF-1 mRNA expression. So the study by Hughes et al. found that essential amino acid supplementation, that is glutamine, arginine, and taurine, following femoral fracture in a protein malnourished rat model increases serum albumin, body mass, quadriceps total protein content, and fracture callus mineralization. Expression of IGF-1 and IGF-2, myosin, actin, and VEGF mRNA were all significantly decreased in the amino acid supplemented group compared to the malnourished group. The malnourished group is thought to have upregulation of mRNA expression in an attempt to increase the amount of protein product that is translated. However, the lack of amino acid building blocks in the malnutrition group was a barrier to appropriate protein synthesis. The study by Day et al. created a malnourished rat femur fracture model by administering a 6% protein diet. They found that administering a 20% protein diet in the post-fracture period yielded a greater cross-sectional area of the fracture callus and callus stiffness compared to the 6% protein malnourished group. Moving on to the next question. Level one evidence has shown low-intensity pulsed ultrasound stimulation or lipos decrease the time to fracture union in all of the following injuries except, and the choices are one, radius shaft fracture, two, distal radius fracture, 3. tibia shaft fracture treated with casting, 4. tibia shaft fracture treated with reamed intramedullary nailing, and 5. scaphoid fracture. The correct answer to this question is 4. tibia shaft fracture treated with reamed intramedullary nailing. So tibia shaft fractures treated with reamed intramedullary nailing do not have level 1 evidence supporting adjunctive lipis treatment. Lipus or low-intensity pulse ultrasound bone stimulators delivered 30 milliwatt pulsed waves via an external device over the fracture site. The meta-analysis by Bus et al. found six randomized control trials evaluating low-intensity pulsed ultrasound. They concluded that low-intensity pulsed ultrasound treatment may significantly reduce the time to fracture healing for fractures treated non-operatively. The meta-analysis cites that Imami et al. found no benefit to lipos treatment on intramedullary fixed tibial fractures. Injuries described in the meta-analysis as having positive benefits from lipos include radius shaft, distal radius, scaphoid, and tibia treated with casting. In the level 1 study by Heckman et al., in a total of 67 patients, found a significant decrease in the time to clinical healing in tibia fractures treated with casting and no serious complications with its use. Moving on to the next question. What is the mechanism of action of capacitive coupling stimulation when used as an adjunctive therapy for bone healing? And the choices are 1. Reduces oxygen concentration and increases local tissue pH. 2. Stimulates transmembrane calcium translocation via voltage-gated calcium channels. 3. Upregulates TNF-alpha. 4. Transmits mechanical energy to stimulate bone formation. And 5. Upregulates osteoclast activity. The correct answer to this question is 2. Stimulates transmembrane calcium translocation via voltage-gated calcium channels. So adjunctive therapies for bone healing are widely used and the mechanism of action is slowly being elucidated. Capacitive coupling involves externally placed electrodes with an alternating current which creates an electrical field. This stimulates calcium translocation which then activates calmodulin and upregulates many factors involved in bone healing, such as BMP, cyclic adenosine monophosphate, and TGF-beta-1. Direct current stimulates an inflammatory-like response during fracture repair, while pulsed electromagnetic fields cause calcification of fibrocartilage, but not calcification of fibrous tissue. Moving on to the next question. Direct or primary bone healing occurs when a fracture is reduced and internally fixed with which of the following methods? And the choices are 1. Unlocked intramedullary nail, 2. Locked intramedullary nail, 3. External fixation four lag screw fixation and neutralization plate, and five percutaneously inserted locked bridge plate. The correct answer to this question is four lag screw fixation and neutralization plate. So callus-free direct or primary bone healing requires direct bone apposition and absolute stability. Rigid internal fixation with a lag screw or by plate fixation using a compression technique is required to achieve absolute stability. The other methods described each provide varying degrees of motion at the fracture site. When motion is present at the fracture site, the bone heals with callus, or secondary, otherwise known as indirect, fracture healing. Moving on to the next question, which of the following statements regarding COX-2 is false? And the choices are 1. It causes mesenchymal stem cells to differentiate into osteoblasts. 2. COX-2 knockout mice heal fractures more quickly than control mice. 3. COX-2 is an enzyme which converts arachidonic acid to prostaglandin, endoperoxidase H2. 4. Most NSAIDs non-specifically inhibit both COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes. And 5. The expression of COX-2 is upregulated in several human cancers. The correct answer to this question is 2. COX-2 knockout mice heal fractures more quickly than control mice. So cyclooxygenase 2, otherwise known as COX-2, aka prostaglandin endoperoxidase synthase 2, is an enzyme which converts arachidonic acid to prostaglandin endoperoxidase H2. COX-2 is not expressed under normal conditions, but elevated levels are found during general states of inflammation. Zhang et al. and Simon et al. have both studied the role of COX-2 with regard to fracture healing. Zhang et al. created a COX-2 knockout mouse, one which does not express the COX-2 gene. This COX-2 knockout mouse has been shown to heal fractures more slowly than COX-1 knockout mice or normal controls, thus identifying the role of COX-2 in general inflammation and bone repair. Zhang et al. hypothesized that COX-2 causes mesenchymal progenitor cells to differentiate into osteoblasts, thus promoting new bone formation. Simon et al. showed the delayed effects of fracture healing when animals were treated with COX-2 inhibitors. Gerstenfeld et al. studied the reversibility of COX-2 inhibition on the short-term bone healing in an animal model. They found that COX-2 inhibitors block fracture healing more than NSAIDs, and the magnitude of this effect is related to the duration of treatment. While specific inhibitors of COX-2 exist, traditional NSAIDs non-specifically inhibit both COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes. In addition to its role in inflammation, COX-2 has been shown to be upregulated in many human cancers, such as gallbladder carcinoma. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following is a mechanism by which low-intensity pulsed ultrasound is reported to stimulate fracture healing? And the choices are 1. Decreasing intracellular calcium concentration, 2. Decreasing temperature, 3. Produces nanomotion at the fracture site, 4. Decreases proteoglycan synthesis, and 5. Inhibits integrins. The correct answer to this question is 3. Produces nanomotion at the fracture site. So despite various reports documenting effects of low-intensity ultrasound on living tissues, the exact mechanism of ultrasound on biological tissues remains largely unknown. It is most likely due to the mechanical energy of the sound waves that are transferred to tissues. Low-frequency ultrasound in the region of 1 kHz may be capable of producing vibration and therefore strain across the cell wall, aka nanomotion at the fracture site. The study by Parvizi et al. observed that rat chondrocytes were stimulated by an ultrasound signal. They found that intracellular calcium concentration increased and proteoglycan synthesis increased in response to stimulation. When intracellular calcium was chelated in their experiment, the increase in proteoglycan synthesis reduced significantly, indicating that the rising intracellular calcium concentration as a result of ultrasound stimulation functioned as an intracellular signal to increase proteoglycan synthesis. Leung et al. showed that ultrasound had no significant effect on preventing bone loss in postmenopausal women. Moving on to the next question, Which of the following is most often implicated as an etiology for a hypertrophic nonunion? And the choices are 1. Malreduction with open plating, 2. Smoking, 3. Inadequate mechanical stability, 4. Open injury with significant soft tissue stripping, and 5. Infection. The correct answer to this question is 3. Inadequate mechanical stability. So hypertrophic non-unions are caused by inadequate stability with callus formation by an appropriate biological response. Lack of biology leads to an atrophic non-union. Hypertrophic non-unions should be treated with a fixation construct that lends appropriate stability without creating a poor biological environment. Moving on to the next question: What type of fracture healing occurs in a femoral shaft fracture treated with an intramedullary nail? And the choices are one: primary fracture healing. 2. Secondary fracture healing, 3. Extramembranous ossification, 4. Haversion remodeling, and 5. Cutting cone remodeling. The correct answer to this question is 2. Secondary fracture healing. So intramedullary nails function as internal splints that allow for secondary fracture healing. To quickly review, secondary bone healing involves responses in the periosteum and external soft tissues. Here, both committed osteoprogenitor cells and uncommitted undifferentiated mesenchymal cells contribute to the process of fracture healing by recapitulation of embryonic intramembranous ossification and endochondral bone formation. The response from the periosteum is a fundamental reaction to bone injury and is enhanced by motion and inhibited by rigid fixation. Bong et al. reviewed the biomechanics and biology of long bone fracture healing with intramedullary nailing. They showed that reaming and the insertion of intramedullary nails can have early deleterious effects on endosteal and cortical blood flow initially. However, the canal reaming appears to have an overall positive effect at the fracture site as it increases extra osseous circulation and applies bone graft to the fracture site. Moving on to the next question. During fracture healing, granulation tissue tolerates the greatest strain before failure so that mature bone can eventually bridge the fracture gap during healing. What is the definition of strain? And the choices are 1. Amount of force an object can withstand until plastic deformation is lost. 2. Change in length over the original length of an object due to an external force. 3. Relationship of stiffness to time-dependent loading. 4. Force intensity over volume. And 5. Force intensity over cross-sectional area. The correct answer to this question is 2, change in length over the original length of an object due to an external force. So again, strain is defined as the change in length over the original length and is created by a deformation of a material from an applied force. To quickly review, the mechanical environment at the fracture site has a major influence on fracture healing. Granulation tissue can withstand higher strain, which stabilizes the mechanical environment and forms a scaffold on which cartilage and bone eventually form. This occurs after strain decreases incrementally. Optimal healing, however, depends on duration, rate, timing, and type of mechanical influence. Bone is formed by osteoblasts that are adapted to the very low strains over 1% change in length. Osteoblast synthesis and proliferation is stimulated at uniaxial strain of between 0.3% and 2.8% it is known that limited interfragmentary movement of 0.2 mm to 1 mm is optimal for fracture healing, resulting in promotion of callus and increase in rigidity. Excessive movement, on the other hand, prolongs fracture healing. Researchers have identified that tissue strain of 2% is suitable for primary bone healing, and secondary bone healing takes place at a tissue strain of 2-10%. to Strain of 10-100% to 100% results in fibrous tissue formation and 100% strain to non-union. This is known as Perrin's theory. Stokes published a review article on the side effects of stress on bone healing and growth and notes the importance of the Hutter-Volkman law, which states that growth is retarded by increased mechanical compression and accelerated by reduced loading in comparison with normal values in bone growth. Stokes also notes that sustained compression of physiological magnitude inhibits growth by 40% or more, while distraction increases growth rate by a much smaller amount. And moving on to the final question, type 10 collagen expression by hypertrophic chondrocytes is characteristic of which of the following aspects of fracture healing? And the choices are one, inflammation, two, granulation tissue formation, three, cartilage callus formation and calcification, four, bone deposition, and five, bone remodeling. The correct answer to this question is three, cartilage callus formation and calcification. So there are three phases to fracture healing. One, reactive, two, reparative, and three, remodeling. The reactive phase is characterized by inflammation and granulation tissue formation. The reparative phase is marked by cartilage callus formation and bone deposition. Finally, the bone deposited during the reparative phase is remodeled during the remodeling phase. Type 10 collagen is a homotrimeric collagen found in hypertrophic cartilage expressed during the cartilage callus calcification phase of fracture healing. After fracture, inflammation and clot formation occurs where type 1 and type 2 collagen are found. Type 3 collagen is expressed by fibroblasts and type 5 is found in areas of fibrous tissue formation. In the soft tissue callus slash chondroid phase, types 2 and types 9 predominate, with type 2 being deposited in areas of mature cartilage production and type 9 stabilizing the fibrils of type 2. In the callus calcification phase, type 10 collagen is expressed by proliferating chondrocytes as the extracellular matrix undergoes calcification. In the osteogenic bone deposition phase, There is a progressive shift from primary to secondary spongiosa and type 1 collagen predominates. That's all for this question review session about fracture healing. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you've gotten any value out of the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a 5-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts.